So it is the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. In your heart, you know he's right. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. This is Liberty in Exile with your host, Yael Osofsky. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bring you liberty, not destroy it. The evil that governments do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with liberty in exile. Hello and welcome to the program for the beginning of February. This is the 2nd of February, 2013. I'm your host, Yaya here broadcasting from the Sunshine State Studio on the No Agenda Stream. It's been uh, quite an amazing time here in the new year of 2013. We have uh, plenty of amazing things to get to. But of course, first, I must introduce our guest for the hour. His name is Christopher Redfield. He has been a guest on the program two other times, but he is here to complete the trifecta, complete the trilogy. So I do have to say, Sir Redfield, welcome again to the program. And uh, we have a, a nice little Google Doc with some things to talk about, but of course it is an open floor and I do believe in freedom. So I'll, I'll uh, basically open it up to you. Uh, what really we want to talk about first, we were talking before uh, the show loaded about this new service called Mega. Now, if uh, any of you listened last week on Liberty in Exile, I talked a little bit about Kim.com. He is the, uh, I guess you could say, internet pioneer, originally born in Germany, who created the website Mega Upload, where a lot of people were able to watch television shows and movies by streaming them online and created an amazing uh, network. And uh, he was able to put that together in uh, great due time, I I would say. And it was very popular until he was shut down by the American police, threatened with arrest. And he is now uh, just basically waiting it out in New Zealand. And in the meantime, he's created something called Mega. It's something that you do have to sign up for, but it is basically a cloud server granted to every user, and it gives you 50 gigabytes of space. I've, I've begun to put a lot of the Liberty in Exile materials and archives on there, and I really recommend that anyone else uh, go and check out this website. I'll put the link on libertyinexile.com so you can check it out. So I guess after hearing that, Sir Redfield, and, and knowing a little bit about Kim.com and really what it means uh, to be on the internet and connected to the cloud in the 21st century. What is uh, what is your opinion on this? Well, you know I love the cloud. I think it's great. I think it's a, a, an amazing innovation. But I was just wondering from your uh, from your introduction there, you said that you have to sign up. Were you uh, implying that there was a cost involved with getting the 50 gigs? The cost is you have to insert your email address and a password. That's it. Wow. Wow. What a deal. That is a seriously good deal for 50 gigs. I think that 
um, Dropbox starts you off with like five gigabytes. No, no, and... no. It starts you out with uh, less than one, and you have to work up to uh, however, like four or five gigabytes after you invite more and more people. Wow. Okay, so this is you know in the fifty fold, um, fifty fold what what Dropbox starts you off with. That's 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 great. That's awesome. And, and I think you said there's a, a high level of encryption as well, right? We all, uh, from what we've seen, and really I've read all the blogs and read all the tweets and really looked at everything right now, and he is claiming that this is probably the most encrypted website or server or whatever you want to call it that's been invented. He's actually offering, I think it's about 10,000 uh, euros, about 13,000 U.S. dollars to anybody who can hack the system outright. So obviously it's a monetary incentive for any of the hackers to see if they can penetrate the network. I don't haven't seen any reports of anyone doing it yet, but again, uh, uh, we don't know what is to happen. But this is only for for a lot of people. You know, cloud storage is not for them. They don't really understand what that means. I guess if I could ask you as a uh, as a user of the interwebs, how would you how would you explain cloud storage to someone who might be a novice? Huh, that's tough. I guess it's not very often that I talk to people who aren't familiar with the internets. But um, cloud storage is basically just um, uh, the way that your comp- your your own home computer holds data. Someone else is holding it for you, um, kind of like an escrow account almost, and um, and they're holding it for you, and you can access it whenever you want. Uh, maybe it's kind of like a um, a safety deposit box at the bank. You can go there. You can access it whenever you want. You can take whatever you want out of it. You can put whatever you want into it as long as it fits. And um, and it's a and and some you know some services are free. Some are not. This this uh, mega is is obviously free. Dropbox is free. But so that's how I would explain. I guess I would kind of uh, equate it to a uh, to a, a safety deposit box at the bank. Yeah, okay. It's basically it's a way for people to save uh, all their information that they have, but not on a physical hard drive, not on a USB stick, but actually on a remote server that is accessible from any computer anywhere. And obviously this for our society right now where nobody fixes any computers anymore. People just buy new stuff again and again and again, and you can access things from anywhere, whether it be a mobile device. Uh, I I accessed my uh, mega server from my own phone. I was able to do that very easily. People can do that from any computer or wow. uh, smart device that they have equipped. So obviously, this is uh, the beginning of uh, the future, as it may yeah. be. You know, what? I, I should revise my my comparison to a, a safety deposit box because if you go overseas or if you go out of town, it's a long drive back to get to your safety deposit box. But with this cloud server, it's as if the um, the safety deposit box follows you around, right? So, like, uh, it's as if the bank is always nearby. The bank is always in town for you to go go into it and check out your safety deposit box. And I think another way that we can compare it to Dropbox, but say it's even better, is that Dropbox, if you want to share, let's say I want to share a file with you, I, you know, perhaps I'll send you the link or I'll invite you to the folder. But with Mega, it's a completely different system. It's like you have contacts. It's just like a Facebook page or like a Twitter account. You have different contacts, and you can easily drag and drop stuff into the folder that we're sharing. So I can easily send 
anything I have in my 50 gigabytes, drop it in our mutual 50 gigabytes, and it goes on and on and on. And this is how people can share basically anything. Now, of course, the uh, police have come out in force. The I believe it was the FBI uh, set up this fake search engine. It was like mega search dot me something like that. It was attempting to index what people had in their cloud servers. Now, in the privacy settings of Mega and Kim.com's interviews, whenever he's spoken about this, they've done everything they can to completely encrypt whatever is in the cloud server. Even he cannot go into your folder and see what's in there, access it, drag and drop, or anything like that. And this website that was put up, he and his cronies actually DDoSed it. They put a lot of, uh, basically you would call them uh, web attacks on that search engine and they actually shut down the website successfully so they got the internet trolls of the FBI out of business. Wow. Yeah, so that's a so, good to know. Good uh, to know. The, the, this, um, this idea of, you know, this idea of being able to share, like being able to share files um, via the cloud and especially given this idea where this cloud is bigger than previous clouds that we've seen in the sense that this one's 50 for free and Dropbox, Dropbox is one or whatever, five, up to five or up to ten. However, however they, however they work their system, it's kind of um, starting to remind, or not remind me, but oh yeah, remind me of this idea of the of the internet and sharing and how it kind of would work in an ideal world, where we were, uh, if we were going to invent the internet or invent file sharing from the bottom or from from the uh, from from the from the top down, if if we're going to if we're going to organize it in that way, and the way I think about it is that I have a de- like I have a a video collection. Let's say I have a video uh, my movie my movie collection. You have your movie collection. The way that we currently have it, yours is taking up you know ten gigs on your hard drive. Mine is taking up ten gigs on my hard drive. But we have a lot of overlap in our movies. So why is there two? Why? Why is there multiple instances of one movie? Whereas we should, there should be one instance <clears throat> out there in the cloud, and whoever wants to access it can access it. So yeah, that, no, I, I understand your point. It's like one file, and if at any time we would like to access that file, we all have equal opportunity to go and get it, access it, and we'll we're able to obtain it on our own. But I exactly. think the problem, of course, is that. The Hollywood lobby, and that is the uh, the big uh, the big lobby is now headed by former Senator Christopher Dodd. Uh, I'm I'm sorry that he shares a first name with you, but this is the guy who is now head of the Motion Picture Association of America, and he is in Washington every day trying to get anybody in Washington to clamp down on copyright, to go after all these people who are sharing stuff online, even though things have been uploaded. I think there. A lot of people don't really know this, but to upload something onto the internet, if you own it, if you own it, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing that is inherently illegal about it if you own it. However, it's it's once that it comes out of your possession and people start sharing it that the law is iffy and a lot of these copyright lawsuits that are coming out with people who download a movie or a song or something, that's what this is about. So you're always going to have that pressure from these industry groups. And, of course, Kim.com and the mega people, thats they're going to feel the wrath of that as long as they have this site up. So, obviously, 
I wish them the best of luck, and always, uh, if they're trying to combat the Leviathan and uh, the American Empire, I'm always for it, so I, I do wish them good <laughs> luck in that regard, right? I wish them luck as well. Yeah, and I, I guess this is a, a good transition. We have some, some good articles about the NSA spying. I talked a little bit about that in the last program. I, I think this is something that is so important because it's not talked about anymore. I, I didn't even know who was playing it in the Super Bowl this weekend because I've been so focused on this. And I know for a lot of people that's, you know, it's, uh, it's heresy. How could you not know who's playing in the Super Bowl? Well, it's the San Francisco 49ers versus Baltimore Ravens. Okay, now that we have that on the record. But the the point is is that (laughs) maybe I don't know who's playing in the Super Bowl, but I've been trying to express on this program and others. I did a a radio interview with uh, my good friend Carl Knox on CJLO 1690 AM where I started in Marial, my first radio station where I started this program. I was on with him on Friday, and we talked a lot about the NSA and all the spying that is going on now in the United States of our domestic communications back and forth. This Skype conversation, per the Patriot Act, per uh, the FISA Act, per all of that, is being indexed and recorded for the United States government. Now, of course, that does not mean that somebody is listening, but if they are, they can send me an email, yael at live.ca, and tell me if they like the show. <laughs> it, that doesn't mean that someone is listening, but it does mean that it is being indexed, and it could be used sometime in the future to perhaps come after me or even you, Christopher Redfield, if you want to run for Congress. Who knows? Right, right, right. No, I. that's um, that's a great point because I think the 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 vastness of how much – communication is going on kind of makes people think that they're in the safe zone because it's impossible for them to be listening in on me right now but as long as it's being recorded and if they ever decide to do an investigation on you your person then they can look like they're going to look you up just like you said the files are indexed and they will find you and they, they can look at all of your history all of all of the communications that you've that, that, that you're talking about so we sh- we cannot think that because there's such a, a vast amount of communication that uh, we're we can we can hide in the in the midst of it but Chris we're not doing anything wrong no no I mean that's true too works where where this is this is a free country um, it is freer than it's you know freer than most and, and and we shouldn't settle for we shouldn't settle for freer than most we should we should be striving for a completely free society. <clears throat> Excuse me, but um, but yeah, we shouldn't have to worry about being spied on. You're right. Now, an, an, I just want to give a segue here because there's an, an interesting article on Slate. Do you read Slate by any chance? Um, not 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 very frequently. Well, Slate is a it's a very it used to be a very hip uh, website. It had a lot about culture and trying to mix it in. It was a very early version of BuzzFeed, you can say. And it was uh, bought up by the Washington Post, so it became very uh, establishment, shall we say. But they they do have some good reporters. Uh, David Weigel is a very good one. He talks a lot about politics, more of a libertarian voice. That's very good. But there's a a great article that I found uh, just from, I believe, last week called Meet the American Company Helping Governments Spy on Billions of Communications. And this article, it it is in the show notes at libertyinexile.com. You'll see it right there. Uh, under all the links, it will probably be under internets. It has a, an interesting profile of this company called Verint. Verint is headquartered in Melville, uh, New York. Unfortunately, it's Melville. Sorry, Melanie. 
what we're looking at here is a company that basically sells all the spy and communication equipment to the National Security Agency. Now, they have uh, very vast networks of monitoring centers, as they call them, which, quote, enable the interception, monitoring, and analysis of target and mass communications over virtually any network for 1995. And really what we're looking at here is just symptomatic of this entire military-industrial spy NSA complex that we have in this nation. And I, and I was in Washington just last week, and you can see it from all these buildings and infrastructure and all the money that is poured into Washington. There are companies and people who profit immensely from all of these government programs which take away rights, liberties, and freedoms of people all across this country. And I don't know exactly what you call it. Uh, you can call it cronyism, uh, which is you know sort of the, the economic view. Uh, Chris Redfield can inform us a little bit more about that. Or you can call it what I call I call it corporatism. I call it the system where you have elite groups of people that have amassed great control of society, of industry, of government, of rulemaking, and they've really tilted the game in their own direction. And that is really to the detriment of the majority. I don't know. That That's sort of my view. What do you think there, uh, Sir Redfield? No, I think you're spot on. It's this corporatism. Maybe we can think about it in a way, in 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 a phrase where you say, "We're not sure where corporations end and where governments begin." Um, and yeah, you're right. Some people call it, uh, or the the economists they refer to it as cronyism, or uh, a little bit older phrase, rent seeking. And it's the idea, and just like you said, now that there are. Uh, businesses providing these services to government now it is these businesses that have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo so that they can um, maintain their uh, revenue streams so they don't want the laws to change in a way that's going to adversely affect them so regardless of what the public how how the law affects the public it's in the business's interest to lobby to make sure that those laws remain in place and I think uh, for another article that might interest uh, listeners of the program, there's a great article by Glenn Greenwald over at The Guardian. He used to be over at Salon.com, but now he's uh, he's hitting the American empire at the mouth over at uh, The Guardian. He has a great article called The Pentagon's New Massive Expansion of Cybersecurity Unit is About Everything Except Defense. Cyber threats are the new pretext to justify expansion of power and profit for the public-private national security state. And I think the, really the extent of this will never truly be known. This, this is the thing that really bothers, especially me, but the fact that people are, aren't paying attention to this is that this is going on all of the time, and we cannot, in writing or even on this program, in audio or in video, accurately capture exactly what is happening at the present. That is almost impossible to do. But if we were able to do that, we'd see how much money is being funneled to spying on people or taking away people's rights or how much money goes into all the equipment the TSA uses to poke and prod you and, and touch you in every single angle. And I, I'm reminded again of my trip to D.C. last week where we took the metro to the Pentagon station. And at the Pentagon station, there's a beautiful sign out there. It's a, it's a sign put up by, I believe it's Lockheed Martin. 
and it's written at the very bottom. It's like, if you have the security clearance, apply for some great jobs and great careers. And it has money, dollar bills flying and shows people uh, with you know suits and ties looking handsome and happy. Of course, if all we do is get a contract with the government, we can be happy. And I'm glad you brought up rent-seeking Chris Redfield because that's really, at the end, what it's all about. Getting money from the nipple of the taxpayers. I mean, and poor, and, and poor taxpayers, right? And just to expand on this for any of any viewers that haven't, um, or any listeners that haven't heard me talk about rent seeking before, or talk about um, public choice theory, public choice theorists are economists who try to figure out ways of explaining the mechanisms by which um, uh, corporations or you know special interests are able to. Um, are able to extract these rents, and one of the uh, one of the explanations that they have is that it's this uh, difference when it comes to concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. The vested interest, like as I was saying, is able to receive the concentrated benefits, and then the taxpayers are left with the dispersed costs. And the uh, the taxpayers, since they're each feeling the burden but only a, a, a tiny bit for this one particular policy, they have no uh, significant incentive to uh, join together in order to defeat this, uh, this small policy that's costing them you know, less than $5 a year. Whereas the Lockheed Martin or the Blackwater or whomever has the incentive to make sure that that law stays in place because that one law nets them a revenue stream of you know millions and millions of dollars and they're really not the only industry i mean i think that's what dc i think that's what bothers me the most most about dc it's it's filled with creeps hundreds of thousands of creeps people in suits who all get money from the government and that money is in turn i mean i i, I had to give up six thousand dollars to uncle sam last year that's just through federal income tax that's not including anything else now, did that money go to you know feed somebody or do anything like that? No, I, I have no doubt it went to continue and to expand the empire and to give uh, more money to these jokers who sit in these office buildings all around D.C., who pat congressmen on the back and just uh, have the, the greatest of relationships. I think it's, a again, a total scam. But that's my own view, right? Right, right. And if we can look into history for a bit, um, one of the uh, one of the great... Um, thinkers and one of the great writers that Amer that we have in American history it would be Henry David Thoreau. And in his Civil Disobedience, he talks about how he has ceased to pay taxes because he knows that it's going to be going towards, the Me I think, the Mexican-American War? Yeah, or, that's right. Right, so he knew that it was going, that those tax dollars were going towards that. And he, like, he, he, he felt the injustice of contributing to that, so that was his one of his basis for civil, his civil disobedience. And it was and until it, it was until the tax officers came onto his property in, in Concord, Connecticut, and tried to take it from him. What did, what ended up happening there? Well, they they took him to prison, and he was in prison for about two or three days until they finally let him out because they they knew they weren't going to get any money out of him. <laughs> well, and that reminds me of the famous oh, so I, and there's a difference in today's society. In that, if you're being taken to prison, there are vested interests that want to keep you there because it it benefits their pockets. Maybe at, in the time of Thoreau, 
if there was if you had been in prison that would be seen as a burden and something that the society or the government structure didn't want to continue because it was costing them so it's a difference today that one place uh, one is seen as a benefit for for particular interest groups and uh, it, back in the day it was seen as a cost and with that said um, we must or the one of the things that Thoreau was talking about at that time um, Oh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Go, 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 go no, ahead. No, no, it's cool. Know. But Thoreau was again against uh, any type of these unjust wars, and he talked about how the government was using force to go and invade the Mexicans and steal all their land, which, again, is still very true. And right now, we're attempting to do the same thing all over um, Mali. Uh, now it is now that's the case. Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. I mean, you just you name it. Yemen, Pakistan. The Amer American empire lives on, and, and you, the slaves out there who are listening in the United States of America, you're paying for it. And uh, for those of you who are on the outside, on the periphery, well, I guess you're a little lucky. That's very good. And, uh, um, this, I think uh, that we randomly got into the Mexican-American War is kind of a good segue into talking about immigration. But before we go there, I will say that uh, being that uh, Thoreau uh, found himself in prison, um, we should remember one of the, uh, one of Thoreau's famous quotes, which is, uh, "In an unjust society, the only place for a just man is behind bars." And I think I, I think I screwed that up, but that was basically the gist. The the gist. I think that's also like a, a and again, not a lot of people know this, but Martin Luther King Jr., who is one of the uh, great civil rights leaders of the, the last 100 years in the United States of America, was a huge fan of Henry David Thoreau and often quoted him and was a personal inspiration for him. And again, for a lot of people who are trying to build their fight up against society and uh, against a uh, very oppressive government, I think he obviously is a great role model to have. I agree. And if, and if we may, uh, if I, if I can interject on one more thing before we get to immigration, I was watching an old interview with, uh, Tupac Shakur in a, a bit in, 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 uh, in the spirit of uh, Black History Month, and he was so we're talking about the NSA and we're talking about spying and we're talking about MLK, and of course, what goes along with that is the Black Panthers. And this made me think about Tupac in this interview that I was just watching, and he was talking about the history of his family and how his mother was a Black Panther and how I think one of his uncles was a Black Panther, and he in his interview mentioned COINTELPRO which of course we know um, was something that was used against Martin Luther King and it's just it's it. we never hear about um, uh, Tupac Shakur's mother never became some uh, a figure as large as, as Martin Luther King but COINTELPRO in, in, the reason I'm bringing this up is because COINTELPRO is not, was not a program only for the biggest names out there. It hit at all levels of the hierarchies of organizations that were critical of the of the status quo. Yeah, and, and just to just to back you up, COINTELPRO, you can read up a, a lot about it. It was a program by the FBI uh, used by the government to really try to basically smear a lot of these uh, groups who were uh, basically threatening their power. These are people who uh, were obviously very against what was going on, like Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Anybody who was protesting the Vietnam War, they were just trying to smear these people as much as they could, and they actually had 
covert operations that they were using to, against these domestic groups. They were trying to go against them, uh, uh, using any sort of media, press releases, talking to journalists, do ev- doing everything they could to, to blacken them and to, to say they're crazy, they're nuts, or they're socialist, or they're communist, or anything like that. Again, and we see that today. You know, they're terrorist sympathizer, sympathizers, you hate the U.S. I mean, these people are ongoing in this program, and in a different way is ongoing. But I'm glad you brought that up. And since we're on the theme of Black History Month, we'll get back to immigration. I think that's still very important. I want to play a good clip by Malcolm X. Malcolm X is one of my uh, favorite, I guess I would say, civil rights heroes, someone who's been very important, I think, to the uh, power of the African-American race in American society today. He's not really talked about because he was a very in the eyes of the government, at least, a very dangerous man. And I have a good clip, uh, I believe it was on CBS or something from, from back in the day, and he's talking about where his name came from, why he was Malcolm X, and if he had a name before, and what slavery has done to the African-American population. So I want to play that clip, and we'll start right Mr. O'Connor. What is your real name? Malcolm. Malcolm X. Uh, is that your legal name? As far as I'm concerned, it's my legal name. Have you been to court to establish the I don't, I, you know, I didn't have to go to court to be called Murphy or Jones or Smith. Excuse me for answering you this way. That's if all right. If a Chinese person were to say his name was Patrick Murphy, uh, you would look at him like he's insane because uh, Murphy is an Irish name, uh, a European name, or the name that uh, has a Caucasian or, or a white background. And a yellow person, Chinese is a yellow man, and uh, he has nothing to do or no connection whatsoever with the name Murphy. And if it doesn't look proper for a person who is yellow or Chinese to be walking around named Murphy or Jones or Johnson or Bunch or Powell, uh, I think it would be just as improper for a black person or the so-called Negro in this country, as we're taught by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to walk around with these names. And therefore, he teaches us that during slavery, the same slave master who owned us uh, put his last name on us to denote that we were his property. So that when you see a Negro today, who's named Johnson. If you go back in his history, you'll find that he was once his grandfather or one of his forefathers was owned by a white man who was named Johnson. His name is Bunch. His, his grandfather was owned by a I white man the point. that was uh, named Bunch. Would you mind telling me what your father's last name was? My father didn't know his last name. My father got his last name from his grandfather, and his grandfather got it from his grandfather, who got it from the slave master. The real names of our people were destroyed well, during was slavery. Any, was there any line... Uh, any point in, in the genealogy of your family when you did have to use the last name, and if so, what was it? The last name of my forefathers yeah. was taken from them when they were brought to America and made slaves. And then the name of the slave master was given, which we refuse. We reject that name today. You and mean, you, mean to... you won't even tell me what your father's supposed last name was or gifted last name was? I never acknowledge it whatsoever. Goodness. That's one of my, my favorite clips from Malcolm X. I think it, it, it serves as, as, I guess, to a lot of people who try to go back and to, to relive this part of history. And it was a very tumultuous time. They had riots. You had the white police officers taking dogs and sicking them on uh, the African-Americans who were trying to sit in and trying to... I guess, affirm their rights in any sort of way. I, it's such an interesting clip, and I, I think a lot of people should in this Black History Month, as, as apparently is uh, so-called, has been denoted by the government. I think a lot of people should uh, listen to him. So that's an interesting little clip. If I can go off on a bit of a Malcolm X MLK tangent, I think it's important that there's an MLK uh, 
day and not a Malcolm X day. Not oh. in the, not in the sense not in the sense that that's how it should be, but in the sense that it's important that uh, the state has 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 made it so that there is an MLK Jr. Day as opposed to um, a joint holiday or a Malcolm X Day, and I don't think we can discount the role that Malcolm X played as a um, the role that Malcolm X played in like uh, in the civil rights movement. For and what I mean by that is that without the stick, right? Without the threat, without Malcolm X's strength and what were legitimately <clears throat> threats of violence then the the deal that MLK was offering essentially would not have been as attractive right so without this without without Malcolm X MLK's um, MLK's movement is not is his his the deal is not as is not as enticing and and if i can if i if i may uh, uh, go into art a little bit, and I don't. I, I think that uh, some people find it funny that I consider this to be art. But um, in the '60s is when Marvel created the X-Men, and at the at the beginning of X-Men, you have this dichotomy between Magneto and you have Professor Xavier, and Professor Xavier and Magneto are opposed to each other in the exact same way that Malcolm X and, 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 and Martin Luther King are opposed to each other. Uh, Professor Xavier wants to, wants to um, live harmoniously with the, um, with the, with the, uh, with the, the, the non, the non, so, um, the mutants, with, with, no? With, yeah, the mutants. He thinks that humanity and the mutants can coexist peacefully, and wants to go through the system in a peaceful way, uh, with compromises and in, in, in the whole nine yards, in order to in order to get to that next level, in order to get to that society where there's where there's where there's harmony between them. And Magneto, on the other hand, thinks that. That harmony is something that is not possible. So, something that um, it, the, the 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 differences make it so that it's not possible. No, I, I think and, you're right. No, I think you're right. And I think Malcolm X, in the very early part of his career, before he went uh, over to Saudi Arabia to make his uh, you know Islamic pilgrimage, he's very much for completely segregating African Americans or Black Americans or Negroes at, at that point in time completely separating them from the white race and completely uh, bringing them either to Africa or creating some sort of different colony. And he did at this time. He called uh, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, an Uncle Tom. He called him uh, uh, the enforcer for the, for the whites. I mean, that, that's really what he, what he called him. And he was very much opposed to the nonviolent strategy. He very much openly advocated that uh, African Americans arm up themselves and have guns and protect themselves, protect their families and their properties. Because he was seeing what a lot of people were seeing at that time. And again, I, I wasn't around at that point in time, but I think we've both uh, read into history enough to know that uh, police officers, again, were sicking their dogs on the African Americans. People were having uh, crosses burned down. Malcolm X's father himself was murdered by the KKK that came after him and his family. I mean, this is a—it's such a terrible time in history, and obviously, we're—I think we're all glad that it's over with. 
there's still a long way to go, but I, I, I still do think that Malcolm X will always be an important figure in that regard. And again, your analysis of uh, the different civil rights leaders uh, at that time, it's interesting that you bring it to X-Men, but uh, yeah, it's still, it's still pretty cool that you can all uh, show it together like that. If I want to, I want to continue on this. I know that that was a good wrap up. No, but, let's do it, but, man. This is a but, debate. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> it's not. It's not a debate. But um, Malcolm X was harboring all of the mistreatment, and mistreatment is putting it very, very, very lightly. Of course, was 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 leveraging all that mistreatment of history. He he. He was carrying that history with him every time he every time he spoke, and, and that's that is what drove his what what drove his uh, what drove his message, I think. And in the same way, it, I, I didn't know that I didn't know that Malcolm X's father was um, was killed by the by the KKK, but um, in the uh, in the X Men um, universe, Magneto's father was um, was killed, and I mean, th- these are. Th- the hatred is is something that Magneto carried with him in the same way that, and I I really don't I'm not trying to I'm not trying to trivialize Malcolm X. And I'm not trying to um, make this a joke or anything by comparing him in this way because I really do think that these uh, comic book artists were making a parallel. They they were very like it was during the time that this was going on, so they were. Uh, they were they were they were creating what they saw. They were mirroring what they saw, and um, and it's 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 this it's the carrying of the past. Whereas I think you said uh, no. I'm I'm actually on the Oh My God Facts website, and it says here that Magneto and Professor X were modeled after Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. So obviously this is something that uh, probably the the writers themselves thought about like you were saying and it was going on oh, around the same well, time and then perhaps i should have i perhaps i'm 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 just repeating something that everyone kind of already knows i i kind of came up with it on my own but i suppose it's it's just common knowledge um and that makes me very embarrassed to be to be to be saying it as if it, as if i'm being profound or something but, no um, no no it's not like that i mean obviously this is not an idea that's written about a great deal I'm, I'm finding like three articles on the googles and i think people are free to to google themselves uh, google themselves and look at it no it's okay, interesting well, okay well excellent excellent if that's out there then i guess we don't we don't we don't necessarily need to flush it out anymore we've we've talked about it and 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 we can point people towards towards uh towards external sources yeah and since malcolm x was himself a pilgrim to the uh the great land of Mecca, as is is important in the Islamic religion, he was himself a uh, temporary immigrant. And we in this country have our own mix of temporary immigrants. I, I again have to give a, a shout-out to my cousins, who are right now in North Carolina, who just received their permanent residency from the United States government. Uh, that is also known as the Green Card. So as long as they stay in the United States and uh, renew that card every seven years, they're allowed to live and work here. But again, if they're caught doing some sort of crime or they get caught up in anything, or again, if they're protesting the government like we do, uh, they might be deported. So that's a warning. But uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about immigration and borders. This is something that is, is making our way into the lexicon, into the current news debate. What's going to happen with uh, the new immigration bills? There's actually one that has been offered and it actually has been tabled now. I'm, I'm looking into it a little bit more. 
by our own Florida U.S. Senator Marco Rubio. He is the son of Cuban immigrants, and he has put forth legislation that will, and uh, actually he spoke with a colleague of mine at my uh, Florida Watchdog publication. He, he said that basically this is going to allow them to uh, pay some sort of penalty, uh, get in the back of the line, go through a, some sort of background check, and then they would be able to apply to have a temporary visa and hopefully one day become permanent residents, uh, get the green card, and become American citizens. So what exactly was the point that you wanted to make on, on this point there, uh, Sir Redfield? Well, as far as immigration goes, I think the uh, one thing that we should remember is this idea that we all want to pursue which is that idea of a free society. And of course, free society means different things to different people. And and I think that when someone says that a free society should have borders that are open and free, that maybe some people think that's a little bit too utopian, that's a little bit too idealistic, it's a little too pie in the sky. But, um, and, and people also think that it would come at a, you know, a significant cost. But, uh, uh, economists like Michael Clemens and echoed by um, Brian Kaplan and Jason Riley have 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 basically come to the conclusion, and I think it's well reasoned that we can open open the borders, and it will cost us negative, right? It won't cost us. It will be a positive. It will be a positive, uh, a net positive result. And okay. and that's an argument that I think that um, is is kind of is kind of not uh, not talked about enough because people think whenever or it's it's I think it's kind of ingrained in humanity. It's one of these uh, it's one of these evolutionary psychology psychological uh, uh, issues that we have is that in order if something if someone's benefiting, then it's costing someone else or. Um, if yeah, the pie. Gonna... The pie is only so big, right? Right, right. This, 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 this. I, 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 I'm worried to say Marxist notion, but I really think it's. I think it's embedded deeper than, than, than Marx is in our in our collective psyche. I think it's a, a, a trait of evolutionary psychology. But yeah, this idea that the pie is fixed, and, um, uh, like I said, these economists um, have argued. And shown empirically that uh, there's there's good reason to believe that it will be a net positive for all involved, especially for the the poor uh, third worlders that are trying to come to what is still um, the land of opportunity. And actually, to, to that point, I, I think one one person that uh, we both have followed, and I know you've read his stuff or seen him on his on his show, is uh, Judge Napolitano, who is now a uh, Fox News legal contributor analyst. He wrote a very good article. Uh, I was able to read through it the other day. It's now kind of on Reason and all these other sites. It was originally on FoxNews.com about how nativism is the arch enemy of the freedom to travel, and he talks about how we should all have the freedom to travel. And, and to that point, again, I, I have to bring up my my good friend Fergus Hodgson, who has uh, the Stateless Man radio show, the StatelessMan.com, and his entire uh, way of thinking is more about thinking beyond borders and thinking beyond oppressive governments. This is a, a guy who himself was born in New Zealand and he's lived in Canada and in the United States. And 
you know, in the eyes of the authorities here, he is not a citizen. He doesn't have any real rights. I mean, obviously, he's not going to be uh, black bag or brown bagged and, you know, intimidated and interrogated, unless, of course, uh, NDAA kicks in and uh, he's a suspected terrorist. But this is a guy who, you know, contributes, he pays taxes and does everything, but in the eyes of the government, he's not a citizen, can't vote, can't do anything with uh, jury duty, really has no say in what goes on in the country other than where he spends his money. And I find it, again, a, a huge a huge trouble, a huge – I would say it's a ridiculous idea that we are somehow bound to have our destiny written in the sky – by the certain spot on the earth where we were born. I was born in the frozen tundra of the north in Canada. Does that mean that for the rest of my life, if I want to try to go to Austria as I'm doing right now, I have to show them that I have X thousands amounts of dollars, that I have to show them all this paperwork, and I have to go through the burden of proving that I am not a danger upon their society? I mean, really... This is something that migration is what we're really talking about. This is something that was so openly endorsed and was the way of life for so many thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. And now we have these barriers and entire administrative bureaucracies that their entire reason for existing is to stop people from moving and trying to make a better life. I think a lot of the um, the anti-immigration sentiment of course along uh, coming coming along with um ingrained instincts in us of xenoph like uh, i'm of course i'm not agreeing with xenophobia but i think that that's another trait of evolutionary psychology that we 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 have is that we are uh, afraid of the other and we distrust and we we distrust and we um discount the economic benefits involved with dealing with the Quote, quote you know Sartre's the other so um and that's one thing but in addition to that because of obviously um we didn't simply start evolving this instinct post 20th century and we know that our our immigration policy has been much freer in the past and i think that one of the reasons why we see a stricter immigration policy today than previously in the United States is the emergence of the welfare state here, and usually, um, you know, I don't, I, I try not to refer to the welfare state by only talking about uh, social benefits because um, uh, that that wouldn't be an accurate picture. An accurate picture is talking about the benefits that corporations receive from the state in addition to the social programs that that are in place, but um, this well, the I think that perhaps the emergence of the welfare state or the the stronger welfare state in the United States is a uh, is a, a cause of our stricter immigration policy. Yeah, but I think one another point I have is I I often get into tussle with these uh, so-called Tea Party conservatives who uh, like to argue with me that uh, illegal immigrants are uh, coming over the borders in in droves, even though the latest. Uh, you know, reports we have from the Hispanic Peace Center uh, say that the uh, immigration is actually net zero in the past two years. But they're telling me that uh, we have thousands of uh, these immigrants who are coming across the borders and immediately getting on welfare. Uh, they're on food stamps, they're on every type of welfare imaginable, and they're just sucking up the teat of the American taxpayer. 
I mean, as an economist, as someone who looks at the numbers and uh, tax rates and how much people contribute and receive from the system, I mean, is this is this really true that somebody can cross the border uh, two weeks ago, uh, come to the United States, and somehow get a welfare check? To be honest, I don't even know how to get a welfare check. I've been living here for, for 15 years. I don't know how to get a welfare check. How are these people who've come across the border, have no legal documents, how are they supposed to secure welfare? How are they supposed to secure their space on the teat of the taxpayer? Okay, well, um, this is just a theory. This is just me theorizing here. I have no empirical evidence to back this up. But I do know that... Um, uh, immigrant communities and family uh, family ties are strong amongst are uh, strong amongst immigrants, and um, it's not entirely something that uh, is out of the realm of possibility that the expertise is kind of gained by the first generation of of of, of people that come, and then with every six with every successive generation. Um, the the, the the tricks of the trade are kind of passed on so that's not something that I don't, I don't think I think that's a possibility but um, with that said um, I, mean, I mean even 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 uh, even Milton Friedman was skeptical of open immigration when it came to uh, in conjunction with the current welfare state the United States currently has he said uh, you cannot simultaneously have free immigration and a welfare state but I think, and well, the reason I think this is because I agree with Brian Kaplan in that um, the the argument the argument of the welfare state being something that should should be the main cause of there not being immigrate uh, not being freer much freer immigration is is kind of a weak argument, especially when we look at um, when we look at uh, when we look at the evidence itself because that, that's all fine in theory. But um, uh, here, here's here. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, quote an art. I'm gonna quote a, a paper right now. It's not very long. So, like, the estimated net fiscal the the estimated net fiscal impacts of immig- of migrants also varies substantially across studies. But the overall magnitude relative to the GDP remains modest. This variance is partly due to different settings and policies, but also due to differences in methodology and assumptions. The more credible analyses typically find very small fiscal effects so even even grant like when we grant that argument the welfare the, the way that welfare um the welfare state affects the these these immigrants is is a uh, it, it, it's 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 a minor it's a minor point and if i'm if i make i know i'm rambling on now but uh, that's not a good argument for wanting to keep the borders closed because what we could do instead is open the borders with the contingency of these uh, migrant or these immigrants not allowed to um, not allowed to receive welfare. Right? That's one option. Or we can do another option, perhaps more humane, is that after a number of years of working, they are able to. Uh, start being eligible for welfare benefits or we can do after they've accumulated X amount of dollars in tax payments to the federal government then they can uh, be eligible for welfare benefits so both of those uh, both of those policy suggestions 
would solve the welfare problem that we're talking about, and it would allow for immigration. Okay, and, and you brought up the point of open borders, and, and to that point, I want to play a little clip. Uh, it's from a fellow named Jason Riley. He is a editorial board member for the Wall Street Journal, arguably probably one of the most important newspapers in the United States, who is going to talk a little bit about open borders and immigration. And this is on Fox News, so he's not really playing to the most receptive crowd. So let's uh, listen to Mr. Riley on Fox. The U.S. moved to simply, for, should move forward simply to give the green light for complete open borders. Well, our next guest says yes. The author of Let Them All In, Jason Riley, is joining us, and he's a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Welcome. Great to have you here today. Thank you for having me. I wouldn't agree with that characterization of my position. The book is an argument for moving to a free market system, for moving to a system that lets supply and demand. Well, the question I have for you is, what do you mean by having open borders? How would that work? Well, you, you would let, right now, the problem, what drives illegal immigration in the U.S. is that uh, there are too many people chasing too few visas. So I would want to bring that into balance. We should allow people to come to meet the labor needs of the U.S. economy. And right now we have politicians and public policymakers essentially engaged in central planning, which didn't work for the Soviet Union and doesn't work in the U.S. regarding immigration, which is one reason we have 11 million-plus illegal immigrants in the country right now. If we want to reduce illegal immigration, give people more legal ways to come. Well, some say the biggest mistake back in 86 uh, when Reagan uh, put through some reforms that allowed amnesty for those undocumented workers, if there was no legal entry path for future immigrants. Do you agree with that? Yes, that was the biggest problem. The biggest problem was that we legalized the population that was here uh, illegally, but did not provide ways for our employers to have access to low-skill foreign labor going forward. And we will be in exactly the same position if all we do this time is legalize the people who are already here. Right now, obviously, our economy is struggling, but we will get back uh, our mojo. Well, the economy will grow. There will be labor demands going forward. And unless people from south of the border can gain legal access to our labor markets, they will start coming illegally again. So I think uh, the key to solving this problem, or at least moving towards a solution, is not simply dealing with the illegal population already here, but dealing with the prospects of the economy growing and our employers' needs Thank you. labor Thank you. Forward. Thank you. That's finally someone who's talking about the net benefit that would come if there are more people in this country. There is a huge influx of people throughout the entire 1800s, and it led to massive growth in the United States. But, of course, we only see these immigrants as people who are going to come here and hop onto the welfare rolls. That's the way, it, of course, it's framed uh, in the more conservative medium. That's really the way the truth works. That's what people think. That's what people assume. And that's what people will continue to believe unless people finally call them on their bullshit. <laughs> I was uh, actually attending a, a webinar with Helen Kreeble. Yeah, um, hold on. Attending a webinar? I suppose. How how would you how? Yeah. Okay. Well, stop messing with me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was attending a webinar, and uh, one of the the points that she had made was when you are able to um, increase the legal avenue for entry into the into the states, which this is going off the same argument as Julian, is that I'm sorry, Julian, is that was that was that Jason uh, going off the same uh, argument as Jason, is that 
uh, we have we actually have some evidence of, of this when when there when the Bracero program was going on, the um, there is a decrease in the number of um, illegal people trying to cross the border apprehended, and uh, before um, before the Bracero program, the number the average number of apprehended people would would was about a million, and once we enacted this Bracero program, this guest worker program. Um, the number went down to 35,000. That's a substantial, substantial decrease. And as that Bracero guest worker program wrapped up, we see, we, or we saw the number of apprehended people go right back up to 1 million. So uh, we know that if we want to, this is a, a, a great empirical example of uh, if we, uh, open up the legal venues we're going to decrease the illegal venues okay all right i mean i, I think this is it's always something uh, that we have to pay attention to and that it's you know i believe this is how any sort of recession or any sort of uh, economic depression or anything that is bad uh, as far as you know not enough people buying stuff or not enough goods and services being used in the economy or just not enough creation out there not enough production this is something that could easily, easily solve it. You know, there are people don't really realize that we have almost 30 million people in this country who are living without papers, without documents. They still have uh, plenty of uh, money that they put into the system. They're still spending money at Target, at Walmart. They're still spending money buying food. I mean, they are contributing to the economy right now. Of course, they're right. not paying and, and, taxes. And, and Let's let's not let's not forget that in addition to these cons these this consumption that they're engaging in, they're also bringing their minds, they're bringing their brain power, and this is what allows for innovation as well. Um, Julian Simon, of course, argues that we shouldn't uh, be worried about population control. We're trying to to, to squash population control. This is world. Uh, he's talking about worldwide because humans bring something. Um, very, very, very important to the table. Not simply our consumption, uh, of our ability to consume, but our ability to create more efficient processes through 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 our imagination, through our innovation, through our mind. We can we can we can create and make things uh, more efficiently. And and so when we shouldn't just think about. Um, I agree with you. The, uh, the, the consumption that uh, new new people in, in in the states will bring is something that uh, businesses will have to ramp up production for but in addition they bring their ideas and that's something that we should cherish and that, that's very true and I I, um, I hope that will be uh, taken uh, as as gospel for the uh, new immigration reforms which are being advocated by Republican Senator Marco Rubio from our state of Florida and uh, other people and in the government. You know, again, it's it's always very sad when we have to try to put all of our hopes and dreams and desires into people in the government. I think that's probably one of the worst situations we can ever be in. But again, we'll hope for anything. And I, again, I have to add to this point, and this will at least for a, a tiny transition, is we've always seen this uh, attitude that we have to secure our borders you know, we have to be sure that nobody can get through. It cannot be porous. You know, we need guns everywhere. There was always in the, in the Republican debates, you know, put up an electrified fence, have people with guns, making sure nobody can come in. I mean, what, what type of prison state nation are we living in where we're 
actively talking about having military people and electrified fences. Uh, that's another point, but I, I have to bring this up because I think it's, it's very interesting. It's a funny photo. Uh, I don't know if you can go to the show notes uh, there, uh, yeah, Christopher Redfield. Yeah, yeah, no problem. LibertyInExile.com. There's a, under guns, we have an, uh, an interesting picture of uh, our president, Barack Obama, shooting skeet. Uh, this is from the official Flickr page of the White House. I want you to get to this picture and, and tell me what you think when you see this. Well, just the idea of shooting skeet is is very. It sounds very bourgeois, if I may. Oh no, but just just please go and look at this. It's hilarious. <laughs> Basically, you have the the president holding what looks to be a twelve gauge shotgun. Oh obviously, uh, yeah, obviously looking, he's. Look, yeah, you see it. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, he's um, he looks like a natural. Oh yeah, a baller. Of course, he is holding the stock uh, a little high. Uh, th- I mean, this kind of gun has a lot of kick. I mean, you you want that thing deep in your shoulder. You don't want it like up near your head, like like he has it. I don't know. It looks looks a little dangerous. And <laughs> I was reading a comment somewhere on some website. It was saying that in this picture, he's straight. He's basically pointing the gun straight ahead. It's like it, well, I don't know what kind of sheet he skeet he's shooting at. <laughs> <laughs> like this is this is half of an execution picture. Yeah, basically. And and the entire reason this is coming out is because the White House apparently last week was asked, you know, oh, does the president even like guns because of his new uh, so-called executive orders, unilateral actions to limit uh, access to guns, to increase background checks, to, uh, you know, expand the, all these studies on uh, how these mentally ill people who roll in prescription drugs should not have access to guns. La-di-da, so la-di-da. So then they took that journalist who asked the question out back and shot him well we don't have a picture of that we have a picture of obama shooting the gun so again we don't see what's on the other side that's (laughs) all you see though is just him pointing the gun this is great this is i think this is what is the definition of public relations of pr of propaganda is that he they have all these questions you know oh has obama been skeet shooting yeah of course really does he have proof and they're like uh 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 it's like Get Obama on the phone. They get him out and they bring him out to Camp David, and he just, like, shoots. They just get him out back, and they just get the photographer. And then they load it on Flickr. It was uploaded uh, actually today, uh, 2nd of February. It was uploaded today, and they write in there, this photo was taken on August 4th. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, it's yeah, hilarious. No, no, I, can, I, I understand exactly what you're saying about this public relations um, idea. No, I mean, and again, a lot of people like to, and again, people who like to, in this case, I'm talking about Rachel Maddow, who, you know, at some parts, she will give some great analysis and great uh, critique of what's going on in the government, but in other times, is just kowtowing to what is going on in the government. That's what all these progressive journalists are about. They're not about principles. They're not about looking at the issues from a principled stance. It's all about elevating our guy and we have to go against the other guys who, you know, have no power, but they're the evil. It's us versus them. It's the whole partisan politics. What is wrong with everything? And when you have people like that who, you know, will say, well, what are these people questioning Obama? Of course he skeet shoots. Of course he does it all the time. He's doing it every day. Come on. Really? Yeah, I mean, and, and for any of any of your listeners that are interested in this idea of us versus them and where some of the where some of the origins of of, of that come from uh jonathan Haidt 
has been doing research in that field for a while. Ooh. And he has a great um, interview, or no, I'm sorry, he doesn't have an interview. He has a great lecture on TED where he talks about, um, where he talks about, uh, he ties that in. And um, I, I, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Haidt, and I'm not going to do it justice if I talk about it. But basically, um, the us versus them mentality has, like, like a, again, another another origin in, in and, and this goes with the xenophobia, of course, that, um, origins in evolutionary psychology and i recommend uh for any of your listeners to go check them out cool all right and we'll try to include that in the links uh be sure we can put that up and, and since we're talking about guns obviously we don't want to talk about it too much uh, i did watch the c-span of the senate committee hearing uh on everything that was going on with guns and what they're trying to do and basically what they're trying to do in the senate is uh instill some sort of new background check procedure on anyone who buys a firearm. Uh, obviously, they believe that uh, criminals who would like to shoot people are going to stand in line for, you know, three days to get their fingerprints done and go through a background check. You know, obviously, that's always happened in, in history. So that's what that whole thing was about. It was a lot of propaganda. It was, they had uh, former Representative Gabby Giffords, who unfortunately was shot uh, by... Uh, Jared Lofner out there in Arizona and Tucson, they had her speak, and it was very emotional and gave their whole spiel. But I don't know. I mean, what, what is what is going to happen now with guns, with the emphasis on this, Chris? You know, I can't say. I know that the mar- the market thinks that um, there's this there's a risk for for legislation, and we see that with the gun sales jumping, and we see that with the ammo sales jumping. Oh yeah. So, oh, to that point. Who is the biggest provider of ammo in the in the country? You think? I don't know. Uh, hit, hit me up. What, what's the answer? Easy get. Easy one. Come on. Walmart. <sighs> oh, okay. Well, they don't. They, I, th- I was thought. I thought you were asking for a manufacturer, but okay. <sighs> this is, yeah, the gotcha. biggest the biggest seller is Walmart, and they had a, a, a. There's an interesting article about how they're actually having to limit their supply now because they're running out of bullets everywhere across the country. What do you mean they're limiting their supply? Um, their cus- customers are only allowed to buy a certain amount? No, no, no. I'm saying that they're not going to have you know 20 boxes at a time. They'll only have five, and they'll have to order more. Basically, the people at the factory who's make- who are making these bullets are having to you know, go down the assembly line so fast they don't have enough to keep up. Gotcha, gotcha. I heard that, and I don't know if this is true, but I heard that Walmart was um, – cutting back on the amount that they were uh supplying like uh, because they thought that that was that because they thought it was maybe dangerous for people to have you know too many too no, much ammunition or something no Dude, that's not the case. we okay. we both know walmart you really think they would do that i mean it's it would not flow well with their profit motive i don't think but yeah. you know i i don't i don't discount any story that I, that i hear uh all you know within reason i suppose Okay. And I mean, we are talking about private industry and what they're doing, but I think for the purpose of this program of Liberty in Exile, and again, you can check out all our links on libertyinexile.com for those of you listening on the New Agenda stream or on the podcast version. And I want to play this clip because this has to do with the government. At the whole, what would you say the police department there, uh, Sir Redfield, whether it be in, in your neck of the woods down there in South Florida or uh, up here near near Tampa for, for myself, 
What is the role of the police department? What are the police there to do in terms of you, the citizen? You, citizen, before they tell you to shut up, what are they there to do? So I think that the 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 the, the popular answer or the politically correct answer is that they're there to enforce the law. But um, I think that they are there to perpetuate their organization's existence. Similarly, uh, the way that any employee um, that their relationship to justify their, their existence, right? To justify their existence. <clears throat> but 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 to perpetuate it, regardless of whether they can justify their existence, they want to keep it going, and the organization wants to keep going. So, whether that be through justification, or whether that be through um, whatever whatever other means, um, I think that that's kind of the maybe inherent goal, and the stated goal is. Uh, uh, to enforce the laws of the land and to protect and, and serve and, and to protect and serve of course so do you feel safe if uh an intruder were to come into your home uh mess with your family or anything were to happen would you be confident that the police would be there on time to deal with any sort of criminals that would be trying to embark on this behavior unfortunately i do not think that i don't think that their response time would 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 be able to um you know uh if, if there was a home invader, I don't think that the response time would be satisfactory to the extent of being able to protect me and my loved ones. So if you're living in a dangerous area and uh, you know that the police will not respond on time, what incentive therefore exists for you, the homeowner, who are, you know, you're living there with your family, what would you do in that situation? You know, you take any, any precaution that you, that you can to protect your, to protect your home. Your, your your home and your loved ones. There you go. And that is the message of Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark Jr. This is a guy who uh, was, you know, he's the big uh, head haunch over there in Milwaukee County, where Milwaukee is in Wisconsin. And he cut an ad, uh, put up an ad where he's talking about what the police can and can't do. And he's talking about how the police are there to help and protect, but sometimes they can't always be there. And that protection is, in the end, a individual responsibility. And he makes an interesting appearance on the Soledad O'Brien show, who's also on the Pierce Morgan show. But I, I want to play this little clip of him because it, it sort of always brings up the question of what are the police really there for? And also, how many people in our society now are so dependent upon the government that they're willing to just throw away all of their regard for safety, for protection, and hand it over to some sort of government bureaucracy, whether or not they have guns, just because they believe they'll be safe. So this is uh, Sheriff David Clark Jr. on the Soledad O'Brien program. Well, uh, the only thing that's scary is the criminal element, and I think the people in Milwaukee County understand that. There are certain situations, and I think most people get that, where 911 is going to be of no use. For instance, once the wolf is at the door, once the intruder is inside your home, once you're on the street and someone sticks a gun in your face to take your car or your wallet, you don't have the option of calling 911. And in those situations, there are certain things that you could do to protect yourself. It's a public safety message, and I'm just here to let the people know, give them the information as to what's going on, and to give them options, if you will, 
as to how to defend themselves in those situations. Give me the some details. Give me some details uh, about the area that you're in charge of. I mean, uh, you talked about furlough. How many officers do you have? Deputies do you have? How many have been furloughed? How much crime have you had? I have about 350 sworn uh, law enforcement officers. And last year with uh, the budget cut, I had to lay off 42 people. The City of Milwaukee Police Department uh, that I work with uh, in conjunction with them anyway for public safety in Milwaukee County. This year is furloughing 1,500 officers three days each. That's 4,500 fewer officer days that will be spent on the street. At the same time, the crime continues to go on. There's a burglary and robbery problem that's been going on for a long time in the city of Milwaukee, and the calls for service continue to get in. So at some point, there is a breaking point. So there are certain situations, and I talked about inside your home or if you're on the street and you know this is something that I've been doing for 35 years in terms of educating people as to what they can do in certain situations and I said at the end of that ad we're partners now you know we've always we're always out there telling the public we want to be your partner we want to work with you we want you to work with us but we never define a role for them and that's what this does. But, you know I know so many uh, sheriffs and law enforcement officials who say one of the things that is most risky for their deputies and for their officers is civilians who are armed and, and not necessarily well trained as certainly as much as they are to be using a weapon. If you hear here's what um, the uh, police chief uh, in Chicago said you put more guns on the street expect more shootings. I don't care if they're licensed legal firearms people who are not highly trained Putting guns in their hands is a recipe for disaster. And he's not the only one I've heard that from. There are a lot of people in law enforcement who feel like that's actually bad for the officers to have civilians who are armed. Well, that's fine. That's his opinion. Uh, he's in charge of the city of Chicago as it relates to public safety. I trust law-abiding citizens. The people that scare me, Soledad, are the criminal elements, the, one who, the ones who have demonstrated time and time again that they will use a firearm uh, to commit a crime. Those are the people that law enforcement officers fear most. So uh, that's why I mentioned in this ad to, if you're going to arm yourself, if you're going to own a firearm, and the firearms are out there anyway. My, my last estimate I've heard, 300 million guns in circulation in the United States and 115 million gun owners in the United States. So we're not putting any more guns on the street. The guns are already there. My message is for law-abiding citizens in certain situations not to go out and enforce the law, I said inside your home when the wolf's at the door and the intruder comes in or someone sticks a gun in your face when you're on the street to, to take your property, there are certain things that you, you can and should do to protect yourself. It's always been my belief that personal safety is an individual responsibility. Oh, and that's definitely something that has uh, not been taken up by a lot of the, the people in the progressive media. They view this as... Uh, basically a heresy. They do not want anybody to question this. The police are there to protect us, to take care of us, and always, and of course, to make sure that we don't have to intermingle with any bad guys. Right, right, right. And this, uh, this, uh, this reminds, reminds me of a, you know, a picture, picture that I saw on the internet recently. It was a picture of uh, fire extinguishers, like home, for, fire extinguishers for the home, and then beneath that picture was a picture of the fire department. And basically, um, it's poking fun at the gun issue, and it says uh, we should ban fire extinguishers because the fire department can come and put out fires for us. So I thought, you know, that's maybe that's a good way of thinking about it, and that we can um, 
maybe solve problems, uh, small problems, um, at the like ourselves at the source before they become before they become really big problems, and uh, and, and you know uh, it, it's absurd to think that we should um, uh, ban f- uh, fire extinguishers. But of course, the counter argument is that. Um, fire extinguishers you can't use them to hurt other people you can only use them um, well I mean that's not that's not even great because you can you know you can use them as a blunt object oh yeah but I've I'm, seen that I've seen that in 24 they use that I'm just rambling I'm just rambling on now but um have you seen that commercial I've, it's if of course it's 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 a it, it promotes the interests of those who make it as all commercials do but it's a Glock commercial and it features this you know attractive young lady and there's an intruder trying to, uh, or a potential intruder tr- trying to trying to get into her home, and the setting is is kind of like a scream setting, right? The, the movie Scream, and uh, throughout the commercial, you see that she's able to effectively protect herself using a fire, like she's she was trained, she has some training with a firearm, and she's able to effectively protect herself. And I recommend that. Um, that you know your listeners see that as well. It was a good. It's a. It's it's a good commercial, and it's a scenario that I think we should we should think about. No, yeah, definitely. And of course, I don't have a television, so I never get to see these ads. So I'm I'm, I'm thankful that uh, Air Redfield is there to to watch them for us. And look, the gun issue will go on and on, and I don't really want to harp on this too much because I think a lot of people are uh, basically sick of this. People have their own views about firearms and how they believe firearms. Uh, should be regulated or whether or not they should exist or whatever it may be people have their own views and they're crazy about it and they're not really going to change their mind i don't think anybody will change their mind whether you bring evidence or facts so-called facts uh, to the debate it doesn't really matter again at the end of the day people are going to do what they do and again this goes back to the urban versus rural divide at least in my mind uh, you have people who live in the city who are uh, very well and, and dandy in their apartments. Uh, they don't ever see guns, don't ever want to see guns, and therefore want them outlawed. And then you have people who live on the outskirts who maybe need them or like to use them. And then you just have this divide, and it brings all this sort of conflagration and all this problem. So what's the point at the end of the day? Huh. I, I think it's it's a... Uh... It's it's interesting and it's important that you said that people don't change their mind. In rare instances, I think that they do. But like you said, or like like you're saying, it's very, like uh, what, like you're alluding to, it doesn't happen very often. Um, and I um, I engage in discussions with uh, with anon- like with anonymous people with with uh, with people who I don't know with strangers, and I really wait where do- like the gym or like. No, no, uh, on the on the internet. On your webs, okay. Reddit, on the, yeah, on the on the on the on the interwebs, on the tubes, and um, I do a really, I do a really, um, I, I try really hard to bring the evidence for 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 my point, and I I try not to say anything unless I'm providing a link that supports whatever it is that I'm saying. Now, and, now, if I can interject, are you talking about sweatshops? Um, that's a recent example, but in a, in addition to that, it, that's I, I try. I tr- my my method for engaging in, in, in debate, in open debate, is I try to make sure that I have back. I, I have backup for everything that I say, and I, I try very hard. Put it that way. 
I hold myself to a high standard on that. And to your point, I see that it's really, it's really not, it's really not effective. So either that's not a good route of going, or um, people really don't change their minds. No, they don't, I don't. Yeah, they don't. That's it's it's either that they they just don't and they won't, or it's that we're not uh, presenting the argument in a persuasive way. But that is to assume that people are not using emotion to basically drive how they will react to everything that you present them with. Right, you know, right. You know when and I just I brought up the the sweatshot example because I was following that thread. There's a a presentation being given by a certain professor is going to talk about why sweatshops have been good for a lot of people in third world nations. And this is abhorrent for a lot of people who obviously go to Starbucks every day and live in these uh, greatly heated houses and uh, have all sorts of amenities all around their home and have all these sort of riches that people have to sweat through and get paid dollars an hour to make their t-shirts. But the fact is, is that a lot of people in these other nations really have no other options and before they were uh, making uh, t-shirts for american apparel they were actually a, you know i don't know what uh, making corn in the field or making rice uh, for maybe uh, 10 dollars a week you know who knows yeah they were i mean in in a lot of cases they're you know uh, engaging in engaging in sex work or they were uh, garbage harvesting or they were toiling um they're toiling in in the sense of uh of the way that God condemned Adam to toil for eating the fruit of uh, the fruit of knowledge. So, um, Ben Powell, the, the professor that we're talking about—I don't mean to get too far into this—but Ben Powell not only does he argue that the sweatshops are these people's best option, but in a lot of the cases, the protesting that is happening uh, on account of uh, by 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 Westerners is absurd. When you look at the the uh, how much the sweatshops are paying in comparison to national averages, yeah, and so, also whenever the, these people protest, they basically inevitably put these places out of business, and these people just no longer have any jobs after the whole thing is over. That's right. That's right. And it's but well, I, maybe I don't want to. I I I I want to get this point across is that. There are some in some countries the sweatshops that are being condemned are paying uh, wages that are four, five, six, eight times the national average of the 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 the, 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 the national average income. Now mm-hmm. that is that's that's like that's like um, if there was a, a a country that was you know uh, thirty times richer than the United States. Currently, in United States current form, that's like those people protesting um, engineers or protesting perhaps um, you know uh, uh, a lawyer. So it's 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 an absurd notion, is what it is. Um, granted, the working conditions are not uh, pretty by our Western sensibilities, but I mean the the point is that. These sweatshops are improving lives, and um, we shouldn't take any action that's going to throw these people into a number of worse options. 
But if I, if I can go back to that point, we're talking just about how to change people's minds about anything. And I think right, at, right, at right. the end, that's obviously will be always an arrogant goal. I mean, what I think and believe today isn't exactly you know what I thought a year ago. We always learn. We have different experiences. We can't always assume that everyone will agree with us. And we can't really ever assume that we're going to change people's minds. People view the world differently. They have different priorities, different goals, and they're just going to view the world differently. Whenever I talk about uh, the wars that are going on in the Middle East and the reasons for being there, most people could care less. Mo- most people care about the Super Bowl and what time it's on and uh, you know what's going on with their sports team or what the latest thing on ESPN was or what the, the top of Huffington Post is and who wore that ugly dress last night. People just don't view the world as we do. And even both of us, even though we're here together right now talking about certain issues, we don't even see the world in the same way. That's right. You're you're pretty much wrong on most on most things. <laughs> well, in your in your own interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um Yeah, uh, it's 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 a tough I think it's a tough question even to ask whether or not um, to answer those two questions or w- answer whether it's the case that people won't change their mind or that we're not doing a good job and if no, we if, I, if I don't, we, I don't, if, I don't, if, I don't if, think uh, it's that if we, if we accept the second one if it's that we're not doing a good job it's kind of unfalsifiable because we can try another method and then if it doesn't work then we can we can apply the same thing we can say oh we're just not doing a good job um but with that said, you're, you were saying that no, we're doing a good job because we are we are showing uh, we're, we're we're giving logical arguments with evidence. We must also remember that Aristotle talked about those three uh, prongs of persuasion. He talks he talks about pathos, logos, and ethos. And perhaps we're doing a, a bang up job with the logos, but we may be neglecting those other two those other two prongs of persuasion we have to appeal to our human Today, our, our, it's our, another our, 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 our fellow man's um, emotions we have to appeal to his logic and we have to appeal to um, what, what's the what's the path what's the pathos stand for I, I, this is not that's not good feeling is that what it is yeah okay so yeah I mean we have to appeal to um we have to appeal to to each. We have to appeal to each. So perhaps we just we're not we're not doing a good job of in that sense. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree, and I I think that's something that, well, I mean, we'll always have to deal with. I think the rest of our lives, but even our own views are always shifting, and with experience and with different, uh, you know, books we read or articles that we we hit on, or you know, obviously. I'm not that much into economics as much as you are, and perhaps I'll read something that'll change my mind. You know, perhaps that'll happen. I don't really know. And I think that's sort of the approach we have in maybe my show and a lot of other people in the alternative media is how do you bring this to a lot of different people, people who might not have the same interests, people who might not have exactly the same skepticisms that we have, people who just basically don't question as much. How do you bring that message to them? At the end of the day, I really have uh, just given up on it. I'm not really seeking out to convert uh, people that I know that uh, you know aren't skeptical. I'm not really reaching out and trying to change their mind because 
all you're going to do is become antagonistic and ruin relationships. And there's really no point to do that because obviously they're not going to take on your worldview and you aren't going to take on their worldview. So you just have to focus on what you have in common and move forward from there. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree with that. And, and if I, if I can uh, comment on that a bit more is that, and that's not even, that's not the worst thing, right? Because I think that when you focus a lot on trying to understand the, the whole, the whole picture, the big picture, that is something that is very resource consuming. That that's something that, it takes a lot of our time um, trying to uh, trying to explain certain questions that we have that maintain our worldview, or, or trying to fit facts in that maintain our worldview. That is something that is time consuming, and in, in, in some cases, it can be it can be addicting. But people who aren't skeptical and who aren't thinking in this way that we're thinking of, they're a, they're, they instead of instead of trying to focus on the huge picture they're able to focus their minds on small problems and make improvements on small problems. And if we're over here focusing on the big picture and we're not improving that big picture, then the people that are really making improvements in our lives and making improvements in society are the people that are focusing all of their energies on small problems and making small improvements on those problems. And that's, and that's how society moves forward with all these marginal uh, all these marginal improvements, and that's the theme behind Tyler Cowen's blog, which is Marginal Revolution. Yeah, that's very true. So, in, when 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 we say when we say, you know, the slaves need to wake up, or or, or when we're being uh, rhetorical or hyper, hyper, hyperbolic like that, it's this it's it's these people that quote need to wake up that are the ones that are you know really improving improving our lives i think and we have to appreciate them for that yeah i I think that's the whole point is that you're going to find that in our own pursuit of the truth of liberty of whatever it may be we're going to have a lot of allies who don't necessarily align with our point of view and you know maybe five years ago it was progressives of the left who you know shared a lot of views about protesting the wars and being against it but now these people are gone and now you have more skeptical people from you know, other sides of this uh, this political spectrum. It helps out, and it's good. But, uh, you know, since that is uh, ongoing and we're talking about alternative theories and alternative uh, ways of viewing the world, uh, we have to point to our good friends in Virginia, which are actually pointing uh, to a, a new type of monetary system. There's an article from The Pilot Online. I think The Pilot is a uh, one of these big newspapers out there in Richmond. Uh, apparently, the title of the article is Virginia Alternative Currency Plan Moves Forward. And this is about uh, attempting to adopt some sort of alternative currency to the Federal Reserve dollar in case there is some sort of major meltdown. This is a, a House bill uh, right there in the local government over there in Virginia. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, they're... Uh, Chris Redfield, you are an economist. You you study this stuff all the time and you look into this stuff. If you see an alternative currency coming from a state, what does that mean to you specifically? Well, first of all, I'm shaking my head over here because I'm I'm an amateur. I, I don't want you to give me more credit than I than I deserve. Um, but you know, one thing, and you and you follow you follow the legislature over here in Florida. Um, legislators introduce bills 
for for brownie point they 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 sometimes introduce bills that they know are not going to uh come to vote are not going to get close to coming to vote and they they uh they introduce bills for brownie points but it is it is still an indicator of of you know the popularity of of the idea and and it's necessary or there has to be some kind of target audience for that bill so in that sense you know that at least the popularity has risen to some degree whereas a politician is seeking brownie points from this population Hmm. um as far as alternative uh, currencies go if if a state is actually um if a state is actually having alternative currencies then you know they are uh maybe worried about they, they they see a risk in 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 following just one they see the risk in following just one uh just one currency yeah and i think that's uh, why a lot more states and i think out in utah and in tennessee they're looking at uh, perhaps uh, finding some sort of a dollar back to gold uh, you know putting something together so i think of course that'll always be interesting to look at and also on the currency front there's more about bitcoin we have more news again you can find all the links at libertyinexile.com this one is an article from bloomberg bitcoin's gains may fuel central bank concerns so we're looking at the value of the bitcoin in u.s dollar since uh, implementation i believe in uh, 2010 or uh, early 2011 and we see a rise, a steady rise. And this is very worrying to the European Central Bank and uh, to the Federal Reserve. That's an article printed in Bloomberg, which is uh, obviously a market-friendly publication. So, you know, looking at that and looking at the world of digital currencies, which are sort of uh, free of the government printing presses, I mean, could this be something that uh, perhaps will be rising a challenge to central banks across the world? I don't know. I mean, I can kind of, uh, uh, if I uh, obviously you know that I'm I'm someone who supports um, the like these ideas of free society and, and classical liberalism. I do think that that would be a good thing. So I hope that um, this alternative, completely bottom-up currency um, has some success, and we do see some success already. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I I certainly hope that that Bitcoin gets bigger and. And maybe really does um, uh, does offer a challenge. And the thing is, is that if it gets big enough to a point where it's offering a challenge, that means that there are quite a few people, or at le- or at minimum, a number of powerful or wealthy people that are using it. And then, so as this grows, the government's opposition to the idea. Um, becomes more risky for the government itself because if the government is opposing the idea and the population is using it then the government is actually going against what the people are, are doing and using but uh, a counter argument to that is that you know uh, during the Great Depression the uh, the United States government was able to confiscate all the gold of their citizens by threatening them with um, 10 years imprisonment or a hundred thousand dollar fine or or both and um in in a hundred thousand dollars or maybe perhaps it was ten thousand dollars but even ten thousand dollars you know in the in the in the in oh the yeah that was that was a fortune to, back in the day right? of course of course so like this is a serious threat 10 years in prison this is a serious threat 
and they were able to have get people to hand over their gold at way below market rate and um so so even when people have um a currency that they're using amongst each other to 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 do the best that they can we do see that government has been successful in the past in being able to get them to stop that in it uh in favor of using their own uh, the government's currency so i'm hopeful but i i have to temper my my hopes and my expectations with this knowledge of of how they played that in the past yeah that's true and again we've uh have all, all our links up at libertyandexile.com. We've talked a lot about guns, uh, the Fed now, borders and immigration, uh, the Internet's privacy. Uh, you know, we could talk a little bit about the American empire. Obviously, we're starting a new war in Mali. Uh, there was an article in the Daily Mail, uh, apparently, and again, this is it's not 100% confirmed, but it was in the Daily Mail about how some sort of American contractor up there near D.C. was... Uh, uh, sending out emails about perhaps a planned uh, chemical weapon attack that would be faked by the Americans in order to blame it on Assad. That's an article in the Daily Mail. You can read that in the show notes, and there's a lot more about Israel is now openly bombing Syria with huge airplanes, uh, even though they have never been provoked. And obviously, this whole thing continues. That goes on, a lot of drone stuff. So uh, the world is in turmoil. Uh, Perhaps World War Three is already uh, already sparked. It was sparked a long time ago. We might really never know until probably 20 years from now when the history books are written. But to hopefully we will be there to write it. Uh, we will be there to, to shape history. We'll be there to, to make sure that the people of the future know what actually happened in this day and age. That's why we're here on this program, Liberty in Exile. I, Chris Redfield, you've been a great guest. Uh, i got to give the, the last word to you. Any last links, subjects, anything you want to hit on, my good friend? Uh, I do have one request of you, actually, and that is to please play my theme music, which you didn't get a chance to uh, to to do in the um, when you were introducing me. So I worked hard uh, coming up with that theme music, and I was hoping that you could uh, that you could outro us maybe with it a bit. Oh man. Well, it's gonna it's gonna require some work. Well, uh, I I I, uh, I I posted it right into the uh, into the chat right below our, uh, our, our 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 Skype here. Well, good man. I'm gonna have to uh, to go here. We have it here uh, in the chat. The YouTube's now we're good to go. So I'll be uh, playing this. There we are. We're gonna have. Our good friend uh, Christopher Redfield. He's been oh, okay. That is an advertisement. We don't want to. Bullshit. It all started off. Okay, that's all bull. This whole thing is always a scam when you're trying to play things on YouTube. <laughs> Everything now is all an advertisement. I don't even know what's going on. It's terrible. It hurts. Okay. It's perfect. a huge scam. No, it is. And uh, you know all these advertisements that are coming out on on the YouTube's now. It's basically every single website, everywhere you go. Every video you click on, somebody's making billions of dollars. Total scam. <laughs> I mean, am, am I alone in thinking this, or is that... Uh... Oh, so it goes. So we're going to play a little bit of uh, our theme. It's been great to have on my good friend Christopher Redfield. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program, and we're going to play the outro, and uh, we'll get back to you here. Now we're talking. <laughs> Thanks, Dale. Appreciate it, man. No worries. Always a pleasure.
Now you were joined on this program on Liberty in Exile by our good friend Christopher Redfield. It is, uh, well, by the time we're programmed with this uh, episode, it'll be the first, or actually the third of February, 2013. I am your host, Yael Lasoski, here in Liberty in Exile. Check us out on libertyinexile.com. We'll be back with a special episode next weekend, uh, all about the growing, growing nation of India. We'll have a, a on-the-ground eyewitness report. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Chris Redfield, thanks for, for coming on, my good friend. Thanks again for having me. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. And uh, here we are. We are Liberty in Exile. Uh, continue on. And, uh, well, stay free, ladies and gentlemen. Au revoir et bonne chance à tous. Visit libertynexile.com.